1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra. Now, we like to think that evidence really matters, right? However, we live in this time when the public is influenced by emotional claims and fiery rhetoric of social media, with the vast majority of consumers claiming that Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are their primary research, information, and news sources, (laughs) Google University. Bad information flourishes in these areas, and it can be packaged in these sexy and sleek and compelling ways that literally change hearts and minds without a shred of legitimate evidence. And and maybe they're not really changing hearts and minds as much as reinforcing bad thinking. It's very easy to find any information that reinforces something that you've heard, even if it's completely wrong. Now, a lot of this is about science literacy or information literacy, and some part of this is psychological. It's it's sociological. It's capitulating to the social pressures to conform to a practice of an in-group, okay? Not rocking the boat with your friends and your social tribe, right? You couple this to the human tendencies of cognitive bias and mental errors, and a claim without support can gain massive traction. Even worse, a claim backed by rigorous reproducible evidence, might be completely ignored if it doesn't fit a group's predetermined narrative. And we've seen this with genetic engineering, glyphosate, vaccination, COVID-19, so many places, too many to name, right? But that's why today's guest is so compelling. As he was involved in epidemiological research in the 1980s, (laughs) pre-Facebook that came to a highly unpopular conclusion. Secondhand smoke poses no special health risk. During the justifiable war on tobacco, such conclusions weren't terribly welcome. And today we'll discuss that work, its genesis and the fallout. As even established reputable scientists trashed the scientists that properly came to unpopular conclusions. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot, He's a cancer epidemiologist, formerly on the faculty of the Albert Einstein School of Medicine, and the author of Getting Risk Right, Understanding the Science of Elusive Health Risks. And he's been on the podcast before. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Cabot.
2: Great to be here, Kevin.
1: Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you again. And and this was an article that when I read it, I just thought this was brilliant because this so much encapsulates what's happening today on many different levels. Yet, does it around a topic that uh, we all can agree on? I think, <laughs> at least the basis of the of the uh, discussion. So, this is really about uh, secondhand smoke, and what does the evidence really say versus uh, what does what is the public opinion and how this was all transmitted? But let's just start out by talking about smoking in general. Tell me about the link between smoking and lung cancer, and how clear is it?
2: I view the association of smoking, cigarette smoking with lung cancer as um, probably the best established uh, epidemiologic associations. And it goes back to a study uh, in 1950, uh, really the first study, epidemiologic study to demonstrate it. So aside from things like uh radiation from the atomic bomb where we have very good information i think cigarette smoking is one of the the first and one of the strongest really uh very compelling evidence uh, simply because People, if you ask them uh, to look back at their lives, they can tell you how much they've smoked. And because smoking is a uh, is a uh, behavior that's that's habitual and and um, addictive, they can really tell you with uh, quite some accuracy. So you see this unbelievable. Unbelievably strong relationship between how many cigarettes, how long one has smoked, how many years, and number of cigarettes smoked per day. Um, And as those uh, variables go up, the risk of lung cancer and other smoking related diseases, and there are many, uh, goes up.
1: And so the hypothesis that um, secondhand smoking or passive smoking, or let's just say the um, the collateral smoke by others who live with heavy smokers could potentially be a cancer risk, right? I mean, there's, there's no reason to think that's a crazy hypothesis.
2: It's not a crazy hypothesis.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And then really, this was bolstered by a Japanese epidemiologist who did some work in this area. So could you tell us a little
2: bit about Hirayama's work? Right. He published a study in uh, 1981, and he had a cohort uh, of uh, healthy Japanese whom he had followed, and he had information on whether they're um, couples and whether if uh, people were married, uh, how much their uh, spouse smoked, so he could look at he could look at people who were married uh, and separate th- divide people who were married into those who um, first of all select those who never smoked, and then he could separate those who never smoked into whether their husband smoked uh, or was a non-smoker. And he also had how much the husband smoked, if they smoked. So he came up with the result that uh, living with a husband who smoked, because in, in Japan, uh, women did not smoke in the uh, first half of the 20th century, it was not a thing. And um, so women whose husbands smoked had uh, double the risk. A, Twofold increased risk of lung cancer compared to women whose husbands uh, did not smoke. So that was that was his result, and it. Um, and at that time, uh, there was a lot of attention, in the late seventies, given to. Um, why should people be exposed to cigarette smoke on airline flights and exposure in public places and so on so and there was an article published about how cigarette smoke can cause eye irritation and so on so so the, his paper uh, landed at a moment when people were really primed to um think about the harm uh to the bystander of of uh, from cigarette smoke. Yeah, I think
1: that that really frames well what was happening in the late seventies and early eighties. I mean, I was I was alive then, and I remember how um friends of my parents who are smokers who are very heavy smokers how a lot of folks would were very polarized against uh cigarette smoking and that the there was a social movement to end cigarette smoking and a lot of uh rhetoric and, and p uh, and uh, psas and all kinds of stuff to get people away from smoking which is a good thing yet right. they seem to have maybe overstepped it with the secondhand smoke part um so this was this article uh by Hirayama, really reinforced what everybody wanted to believe. But how did this kind of raise your ire as somebody who was looking at this a little bit differently?
2: I was, as as we said in a long uh, declaration uh, in our article uh, in the British Medical Journal, we said we were both raised. My co-author and I were both raised in non-smoking households, and. Uh, and we're, we are did not say this, but we were very uh, supportive of limiting people's exposure to cigarette smoke. It was, it struck me as really uh, um, silly that you, I'd walk into a post office to mail a package and I'd be standing next to someone puffing away in this enclosed space. And I had to inhale this person's smoke. It just, so I was very, Pro, uh, controlling exposure to cigarette smoke. Furthermore, I had written and published papers on the effects of actual smoking, cigarette smoking, on lung cancer, cancer of the mouth, bladder cancer, and on and on and on. So, just by by virtue of what I had spent my time as a as a professional as a cancer epidemiologist. Um, I was favorable to people not being, not being exposed to what I always referred when I was interviewed by some newspapers at that time. I always said, this is a totally surplus form of air pollution. This is an, uh, it's unnecessary for anyone to be exposed to this stuff if they don't want to be
1: and you were recruited by the EPA to serve on a on a committee back in the 90s uh to really assess what was happening with secondhand smoke and uh, what happened on that committee
2: well um Started in 1990, and the report was published in 1992. And there was a 15 member panel of all sorts of people uh, people I knew from the National Cancer Institute, and people who worked on uh, uh, smoking in uh, the workplace, which was a topic of great interest at that time. And uh, because people tend to be either exposed if they they live with someone who smokes, or the next biggest uh, exposure would probably be for people who work, who, uh, if there's a lot of smoking in their workplace. So, um, the there was a presence of uh, anti-smoking organizations, which were very, um, very well-organized, very vocal, and um, And the committee, it was a strange situation. The EPA had really commissioned a report to be written by some uh, in-house EPA people and by some outside consultants. And these were very well-meaning people. But they drafted a report, which uh, they sent around to the 15 members of the committee in, in advance of the meeting, and we all had to comment on the the report that they drafted. And the the most striking thing was that the people who drafted the report, uh, when they went through the studies, if a study found that there was a positive association uh, with uh, exposure to secondhand smoke, passive smoking, they thought, well, this must be a good study. Why? Because it found a a positive result. But if there was a study that um, didn't find an association, uh, they thought this was probably uh, less uh, uh, study of lower quality. Now, when we met, everyone mentioned this and said to the, the in-house uh, committee, they said, uh, this is not the way you evaluate studies, guys and uh and so they took out some of that um some of that uh style of of judgment however they kept in place what was really a foregone conclusion uh by one of their outside consultants and this was an estimate of an estimate that In the United States, with its population uh, at that time, they estimated that uh, 3,000 cases of lung cancer occurring among the roughly 200,000 cases of lung cancer that occur every year, or that's around the number of cases, was one of the top, one of the most common cancers, um, would be uh, accounted for by exposure to secondhand smoke. Um, and, and this was what got a big headline in the papers, of course, as they knew it would. There was only one problem with this, and that was that that, that estimate of three 3,000 extra cases of lung cancer due to secondhand smoke, uh, they only got that if they used a uh, a weak statistical test if they did the appropriate statistical test which i won't go into it's called the two-tailed test and it's based on the fact that when you do a study in biology you never know uh, what the outcome is going to be you you can think you have a medicine that's going to cure people you have to look at the opposite possibility uh, which is that this medicine that you think is so great, say ivermectin or whatever, uh, may not be may have a a um, detrimental effect, and so so this um, the EPA co- conclusion had a big impact, and it had the impact that they wanted it to have, which was that it set the foundation for. Uh, cities and and other jurisdictions to pass anti-smoking uh, regulations but it was fa- but but it was a signal that the data were very weak
1: and when the data are extremely weak i mean you you later then would follow up by trying to come up with better tests and can you kind of take me through the improved studies and how they were structured so that you could get d- data that were a little more robust to make that conclusion
2: some of the best studies the best studies are are what are called prospective studies or cohort studies and and the reason for that is that the other type of study a case control study is subject to certain biases uh one of which is just uh too uh likely to play a role and you can't avoid it and that bias is that the case control study usually involves going into a hospital Um, or contacting people soon after they've been discharged from the hospital in order to collect cases of the disease you're interested in, in this case, lung cancer. And then you collect either healthy, um, either controls in the hospital or controls who are people of similar background, similar age and socioeconomic level and so forth, but who, who don't have the disease that you're studying. Lung cancer, um, and when you when you do the interviewing, and I've had a lot of experience interviewing people in these studies. Um, when you when you interview, you um, have to realize that if you're interviewing a patient with lung cancer, and you're asking them to cast their mind back and tell you about their exposures, uh, they have an inclination to look to to think back more intensively over what might have caused their cancer, so that that introduces a kind of bias so that 's why that 's why prospective studies uh, which are not subject to this uh, it 's called recall bias, which are not subject to this bias. Really, provide a the best tool probably for studying this question, and uh, so the American Cancer Society, at that time, had run two long-term uh, prospective studies, and the earlier one was Cancer Prevention Study Number One, which was initiated in 1959 and uh and that was we analyzed data a subset of data from that study the cancer society itself didn't use didn't didn't want to uh analyze the the cancer prevention study one uh and that became an issue uh why didn't they want to look at that data but they made some very um they made some very uh, questionable arguments. The one was that uh, in the 1950s, everyone in the United States was exposed to cigarette smoke. Therefore, you couldn't use cancer prevention study one, the study which we used part of, um, to examine that question. That's patently untrue, as I said. My col, my colleague, my co-author, and I, and many other people, half the population uh, didn't live with in a smoking household. Uh, sm- smoking uh, at its at its apogee, at its uh, highest uh, in the uh, 40s and 50s, only something around 50 percent of the population smoked. Higher in men uh, and lower in women at that time. So. So they didn't use that data set. They did use uh, the second cancer prevention study, which was initiated in 1970, in the 1970s. And, okay, there, there are two major diseases, uh, three major diseases that uh, studies looked at, and those are lung cancer, which has a very strong relation to smoking, and chronic obstructive lung disease, which is not cancer, but is a terrible uh, disease, which causes fibrosis of the lung uh, tissue. And then there's the other very big disease that smoking is responsible for is heart disease. When you look at uh, the data, in contrast to the situation with active smoking, secondhand smoke or passive smoking, you would expect to, if it does involve a risk, you would expect it to uh, involve a modest risk. And the reason for that is simply that instead of directly inhaling smoke into your lungs, the smoke is being uh, diluted by the surrounding air. Um, So you wouldn't expect to, and because... um, People who smoke fewer cigarettes, uh, people who smoke like one to nine cigarettes, they have have a fairly uh, modest increase in their risk as opposed to someone who smokes four packs, smoked four packs or three packs or two packs uh, or one pack of cigarettes, um, where you'd get up into uh, a tenfold risk or even a 20-fold risk of, of lung cancer, you have these results, but the but the nature of the results is they are sort of borderline. They are uh, some of them make it to statistical significance. You may have a doubling of risk, which for an epidemiologist is not a huge uh, increase. Uh, partly because uh limitations of the study and the questions that you ask and your ability to measure the thing you're studying uh can uh swamp a double, a twofold risk but many of the many of the uh results that came people came up with in these published studies were borderline 1.3 1.5 uh 2 and so forth the, the other thing that happened was that people can pick and choose which result from their study they want to uh, headline. And so we actually showed in the paper we wrote after the, uh, in 2006, we showed that um, how in some studies people chose the higher uh, number or the highest number uh, to, to highlight. So this is how this is how uh, the certainty got uh, produced, got generated by the media and by epidemiologists who were convinced that this was a real risk, that there was no doubt about it, uh, because they select, tended to select the um, results that pointed to that that um, pointed most strongly in their data to, to the existence of a risk. And your paper in 2003 had some rather
1: reasonable conclusions that were pretty, were very firm showing that this did not appear to be a risk. And so tell me some of the, about that paper and some of the fallout that came from it.
2: My colleague, Jim Enstrom Uh, who was an epidemiologist at UCLA, he approached me because of my background, because of my having uh, done studies, case control studies on this in the 80s and published, and because I was on the EPA committee. So he approached me and asked me if I'd like to uh, um, collaborate with him to analyze the first American Cancer uh, Society prospective study. We did a really careful study on members of the uh, first ACS, I'll call it American Cancer Society, first ACS cohort, um, who, but it was limited to uh, residents of California. So it was a hundred uh, thousand men and women who were uh, who had never smoked, and we looked at who their husbands were and how much they smoked, but. We did other things. I mentioned that this study was initiated in 1959. Um, We, Jim, Jim Enstrom, uh, recontacted surviving members of the cohort. And we drew up a questionnaire and asked them a number of questions about their exposure uh, to other people's cigarette smoke. And we looked at uh, the what the the reliability which is simply the agreement between the information that was collected earlier on and information that they gave us looking back uh, late late in their lives and we found that there was a a high level of agreement this this the the other thing that the american cancer society studies have is that they allow you to eliminate people who say, tell you that they're non smokers or tell you that they never smoked, when in fact, many people who tell you this when you interview them looking back, um, they uh, turn out to have smoked, uh, but in the far, in the distant past. And somehow it's, uh, it's easier for them to just say, I, I never smoked. Of course, what that does is if you have ex-smokers in the group that you consider uh, people, uh, people who are never smokers, that totally uh, throws into question any results that you obtain because, of the, because even after you've quit the effects of cigarette smoking, uh, in most cases, there's, uh, remain and can, can have effects, uh, decades, uh, later. So, so those were two, those were two strengths of our study. We also looked at the data. Uh, we, we had a 39 year follow-up period from 1959 to the 19, uh, 1990, whatever it was. And, um, So we looked at the data at different time periods. We looked at the data in a number of different ways to see that our results stood up. So what were our results? Our results were simply that uh, we found no association of uh, having lived with a spouse with uh, increased risk of lung cancer. And we found no association with um, coronary heart disease. Um, and let me say that there are a lot more d- uh, heart disease cases in any database like this than there are lung cancers. Um, it's a much more common disease. Uh, we, we did see sort of a possible association with uh, a COPD. The reaction was something that we were totally, totally unprepared for.
1: And that's a really good place to take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot. We're speaking about his article on Quillette that was published uh, the 15th of September, 2023. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, And we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Cabot. He served on the faculty of the Albert Einstein School of Medicine and is the author of many books on risk and getting risk right. We're speaking about something that occurred quite a while ago, at least in terms of modern times, with respect to how a public decision, essentially those who wanted to shape a public decision in the days before social media were able to really change the public perception about secondhand smoke, disregarding the actual data. And I really wanted to do this story today because it really harkens back to all the things that are happening today with respect to technology and how uh, a small intransigent minority of, of voices can really change how the public accepts the evidence that's really there. So, when we left off, we were speaking about your two thousand and three paper and the findings within, and just to recap, there was no association with secondhand smoke. Um, was there an association with lung cancer?
2: No, no, there was absolutely no association with lung cancer or with heart disease, and only sort of a whiff of an association uh with uh, c o p d chronic obstructive lung disease and and that is in contrast to uh, this detailed table um table ten in which we showed uh what it looks like for smokers of different uh intensity, different levels of cigarette smoking with all three diseases, men and women, mm-hmm. and we showed. For people who are the lightest of smokers, which was one to nine cigarettes per day, and then going up, in, uh, uh, up to people who were the heaviest smokers, who smoked between 40 and, if you believe it, 80 cigarettes a day. Um, that, was, that was the maximum. The contrast that we were trying to convey was that uh, there may be some slight risk, but it's not really uh, clear enough because it's so weak in the data that you can't really say that aha we're seeing a, uh, a definitive increase in risk. So that was really that was really what the paper was trying to convey. But as we'll get to, uh, <laughs> that wasn't the message
1: that got across. Well, the the message that was there also was when you looked at smoking and lung cancer, there was a dose response relationship, right? Absolutely, and for,
2: but even even the most striking thing is is that smoking has a different relationship with heart disease. The risk is much lower; It goes up. It's a like a doubling, or maybe above a doubling, maybe a tripling. But I'd be wary of that for a, someone who currently smokes compared to uh, uh someone who's never smoked so it's much lower i mean the risk for lung cancer is say 15 fold increase in risk nevertheless we showed even in that weak relationship with heart disease we showed a a growing and steadily increasing risk for light smokers versus heavier versus even heavier and so smokers so that was very uh that was very compelling you could really see this in men and in women smokers and there was no question that you were looking at a real relationship so um and we looked at people who had heavy passive smoke exposure too, versus we looked at how heavy the exposure was, how much the spouse smoked and nowhere did we find any, any signal. Well, and the BMJ kind of
1: saw that they could lean into this a little bit and maybe show how you're maybe, uh, use you as a cover story that may be a little bit provocative. So what was on the cover of that particular issue?
2: Well, it really it really came as a total surprise out of the blue to us when we saw the the publication, because they put a photograph on the cover and the photograph showed a workplace, an office in California and and blazoned on the entranceway in this uh, to this office. Uh, was a sign saying that um, exposure to secondhand cigarette smoke may be, may cause cancer, and and then they slapped they gave the title uh, their their title for the purposes of the cover, not something we wrote was um, passive smoking may not kill. Mm-hmm. So that was very that was very catchy, and they, so it was the lead the lead article, and uh, it was in in that year two thousand three. It got more hits than than just any but one I think article in the in the BMJ. So we were um, we were famous or or infamous. <laughs> well, well, to be clear, this was peer reviewed and very transparently peer reviewed. It was. They brought in extra statisticians, they had their own statisticians, and they had other statisticians and top statisticians review the thing. And uh, And it was a very, very positive um, review experience in the sense that they asked additional questions. They said, you have the data on this, why don't you look at this? And uh, have you considered this? And we did everything, and not only that, um, this is something I thought was was uh, really um, admirable, they posted the whole review history uh, on their website so that anyone who is interested in looking at uh, the criticisms and our responses and what the review entailed could read it on their website.
1: Well, when this article came out, it was peer reviewed, it was evaluated by experts, yet pushed back against what was considered to be conventional knowledge that secondhand smoke
2: was trouble what was
1: the fallout
2: the american cancer society and issued a press release saying that the study was fatally flawed and supported by the tobacco industry so they did everything they could to um to destroy the, the credibility of the study. And that's, that's partly why I um, wrote this longish uh, article to explain what was really going on. Uh, no, no one had read the full paper, but in a way, reading the paper wasn't the point what we came to realize is that it was the conclusion that people couldn't tolerate because they felt that they uh that it was proven beyond any doubt that uh exposure to passive smoking uh caused uh increased mortality caused lung cancer and so forth so what happened was that anyone could write a, what was called a rapid response to the journal, an electronic uh, letter to the journal. So in the space of a month or two, the journal received 180 of these rapid responses. And uh, most of them were filled with uh, indignation and uh, name calling and People asked how the journal could publish such a piece of um, such a piece of garbage, and um, it was clearly l- wrong. On the other hand, a minority of writers, maybe twenty-five percent, uh, supported the paper. And uh, one person from the United States uh, said, "What I do when I." Read a paper is I read the methods section first, and if the methods section is is junk, then I don't read any further. He said, "Read the methods section and and study carefully what these people did." Well, that is um, that is exactly what it did. It never got. And
1: so that was one big part of the fallout was all these responses. How many of them criticized the work itself in a cogent, relevant way, or was it really just ad hominem?
2: There were no one, none of these letters got into the uh, details of what we did. No one uh, commented really on our um, methods, on the quality of our methods, uh, or our analyses that was it was not it was not not about the science and, and was it funded by the tobacco industry? It was not funded by the tobacco industry. Uh, the for most of the thirty nine years during which uh, Dr. Enstrom followed this cohort of of California members, uh, enrollees in the American Cancer Society study uh he was funded by the um the american cancer society and he, so he published papers on other things he published papers about um uh social uh cohesion measures and religious adherence and uh, and uh, sleep as well as things like smoking and weight and their effects on their effects on longevity, their effects on, on cancer. What happened was that he expressed questions about the passive smoking um, association based on uh, the data that he had in his possession. So at that point, once he expressed uh, skepticism, uh, of this relationship, uh, which he wanted to study, he wanted to do a better study than had been done. He was cut off by the new, he had worked with two of what are called vice presidents for epidemiology at the American Cancer Society, uh, Larry Garfinkel and Clark Heath, and he worked with them in the 60s and throughout the 70s. But when this new head, of epidemiology came in to the American Cancer Society he was um, if uh, he w- could not tolerate the fact that here you had a scientist who was questioning the uh, passive smoking and how big a, how big a risk it was and wanted to study it. So instead of allowing Enstrom to analyze the full data set, he cut him off. Okay, and so he had nothing left to analyze but the California portion of the cohort. And he could not get support from the ACS, uh, needless to say, or from the state of California, which had also become very militant in its views on passive smoking. So he he turned to something that's called the Center for Indoor Air Research, And this was set up with monies contributed by the uh, tobacco industry, but overseen by a scientific board and researchers who allocated the money. So all sorts of researchers uh, received funding for projects uh, um, addressing uh, exposure to smoke uh to passive smoke or indoor indoor air pollution all sorts of people received funding from this organization called Center for Indoor Air Research or CIAR um there was no problem no one qu- questioned their credentials many of them were biochemists uh looking at uh, measuring uh smoke in um workplaces no one had any objection the reason they had an objection to uh, our study was twofold. First, that instead of just measuring the stuff, we were actually looking at well, what is the uh, measurable effect of this stuff in an epidemiologic population? Um, that was number two. That was that was the first thing. Sorry, and number two. Um, we found uh, that there was no association. They trotted out support for from the tobacco industry in order to discredit us. It was as simple as that. If they had uh, had any um, any interest in looking at the facts, looking at our previous uh, publication record uh, on smoking and other questions in epidemiology and the funding and the execution of this study uh they would have thought twice about saying this and so here
1: you have a credible study that's being criticized because of of all of these superfluous things we see all the time even today for other studies you know who funded it and you know we can't believe these researchers all this kind of thing but um This is 2003. So Mm -hmm. uh, my guess is, is if I know the scientific community, like I know the scientific community and here's sarcasm, um, many people came to your rescue to support uh, what the evidence really said.
2: Well, after, you know, decades of research and publication in the field of public health, with many co-authors on on our papers and many colleagues uh, doing interested in the same questions, not one person uh, stuck his. In most cases, it was men. Uh, not one colleague s- s- stuck his neck out and said, "Hey, you should know that these guys are." Uh, respected scientists with a known track record. They've worked on the uh, true effects, uh, ill effects of cigarette smoking. They've published in reputable journals and so on. Uh, Not one person wrote in to speak up for us. And you can see because of the nastiness and the no holds barred, nature of these um these controversies that arise uh you could see why no one would stick their neck out anyway that to me was was profoundly profoundly depressing
1: yeah and and it's also pre twitter right i mean this is this is before really social media ballooned and really would have hung you out to dry that's right Uh, But there have been studies since. I mean, this is 20 years ago. So what have additional analyses shown in the time since your
2: 2003 paper? Good question. Well, to answer that question, uh, we did did a meta-analysis. We did a meta-analysis in 2006, which we published. And really, we showed it often depends on what uh, risk uh results you pull out of the individual papers. You're comparing, you're bringing together you're assembling uh, a, an overview of a number of different studies to in the with the idea of getting a more stable, a more reliable estimate of what the risk is. Well, there were different uh, studies, Uh, meta-analyses conducted on the question of passive smoking, and they would come up with, I'm searching my memory, they would come up with an increased risk of, say, 1.7 or something on that order, um, or whatever they came up with. It was a weakish relative risk. and um, But what we showed was that If you went back to the original papers and you uh looked at the risk estimates uh there was a often there would be a variety of risk estimates and uh, for example you look at people whose husbands were ex-smokers people who quit and and all sorts of uh different details and you could see that really people doing a meta-analysis had a choice of which estimates to to use, to select and use and plug into their uh, overview. What we showed in our 2006 uh, paper with its own meta-analysis, we showed that um, people often picked the higher or the highest estimate to plug in to their meta-analysis, so depending on how you conducted the meta-analysis, you could either find a significant. Um, the, that really is where we are, even even up to the present, with the findings on on passive smoking. It's it's um it's iffy. Going back to the EPA uh, people employees who drafted the that uh report uh people actually uh did meta analyses and they didn't cite studies using CPS1 they didn't cite our study this is the iarc uh, that i'm thinking of but others as well so they didn't cite Um, our study. So what were they doing? They were kicking out a study because it was not because it was less. It's one of, it's definitely one of the higher quality studies, uh, our BMJ paper. Um, They're kicking it out because it showed the wrong result. Yeah. It kind of harkens
1: back to other things we're seeing today where the better studies that don't fit expectations are somehow uh, either uh trashed or weird questions about find grounds
2: you find grounds for rejecting them you find grounds for that's
1: a nice way to say that (laughs) but what's the big message here i mean this shows us the social blind spots that we are willing to tolerate don't just end with the public that they seem to permeate science as well and so what what's the big take-home message from this and what do people really learn from your article and your experience one has
2: to keep in mind that scientists are human. No one's interested in a study that finds um, no association of a, a potential risk that people are interested in. That's why passive smoking is a good sort of a good template, a good example, because nobody thinks about passive smoking now. No one's studying it. No one's interested in it. It's sort of uh, vanished. So dredging up this thing from the past, because it's 20 years since the BMJ article, was a way to, to highlight something that's really a general thing that we're not used to seeing talked about. That is, scientists are human positive results are the currency of of science. You come up with an idea that something may be playing a role, that something is important, and you try to do the best experiment or the best study you can to evaluate the role of this, whatever this factor is. and, And implicitly, you're hoping that it has some impact; that all the work you put in to uh, all, uh, put in on it um, uh, turned up something of importance. And as I said, publication and in a medical journal it depends on having interesting results, and advancement depends on this. So, but we all, at the same time, we have to realize many things that get published have results that never get replicated. And these we refer to as false positives, okay? They're positive because one study finds it, and then you do larger, better, um, more powerful studies. And at the end of a line, and this can go on for a decade or, or longer, and um when different people address the question and in the end you often get uh, uh noticeably better studies and it turns out that something that made Terrible, huge headlines in 1993. For example, uh, women with higher levels of the pesticide DDT have in their blood have fourfold increased risk of breast cancer. Well, when as studies came out um, over a ten-year period, and you if you look at the studies chronologically, the early ones first. So there is a fourfold increased risk. That drops down to 1.3 in the next study, um, and then it drops down to 1.0, uh, to no increased risk. And yet, and yet, people were this got a tremendous amount of coverage. And women, where I was on Long Island at at SUNY uh, Medical School, and uh, women in the 90s were terribly worried about the environmental causes of breast cancer. And people were, the impact of this result, published in a journal, of the National Cancer Institute, um, by reputable epidemiologists, saying that exposure to DDT uh, caused a quadrupling of your risk of breast cancer. You can't imagine. I, I mean, this is tremendously um, has a tremendous impact. Use I use the passive smoking example to show that this is a pattern, and my real take home is. I divulge it. I give it at the, towards the end of the article, and I say something along the lines uh, that we need to realize uh, that finding an association in an epidemiologic study does not justify a claim that that association uh, reflects a relationship in the world real world. It's totally naive and really disingenuous to to um, equate your finding the number that you wind up with and gets into your abstract and gets into the headlines, the quadrupling of risk of breast cancer and so forth associated with DDT, uh, to equate those two things. The reality is uh, you're not capturing all of the biases, all of the nuances, all of the intermediate steps that need to be pinned down um, to make an assertion like that. Epidemiologists know this. They teach it to their graduate students. They they tell you this is this is an association from a study that has its strengths and its weaknesses and its limitations and it's conducted in some population. Well, what happens in what do you see in other populations and so on. But when they publish a paper on passive smoking or electro electromagnetic fields or DDT and breast cancer, something else. Happens, and what happens is that you've got this huge, tremendous human interest, and uh, these, co- and what you publish has a tr- has a tremendous power over people, and you can't you can't ignore that that power. Well, this has been a
1: real eye-opener, and it was really good for me because it just shows that many of the issues we're facing today with misinformation and disinformation that also has this large part of turning a blind eye to the actual evidence. And we're seeing this more and more with COVID, with vaccination, with glyphosate, with many of these hot-button issues. So, Dr. Jeffrey Cabot, thank you for joining me. And if people want to learn more about what you do and your thoughts and your work that you do... Where would they find more information?
2: The, the best place to go is uh, my um, web page, which is simply uh, my name, uh, JeffreyCabot.com. Uh, so if you if you Google and my name is the English spelling Geoffrey and the last name is Kabat, people typically make about four uh, typos <laughs> in spelling my my first name and last name. So um, it. Uh, that web page will come up. And I also occasionally comment on Twitter and I'm one of the, I guess I'm one of the diehards uh, who still feels that uh, reluctant to give up Twitter, which in my experience has been uh, very very uh, tremendously useful. Um, So those are, that's uh, the the, web page gives information about all, it gives links to all of my articles and it talks gives information about my books and um, other, and it addresses some general topics. Now, very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me and we'll follow through
1: uh, next time, hopefully uh, something pretty soon. Thank you. Great. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast. Really important lesson in here. And that is, let the evidence be your guide. Vet the evidence to determine whether or not it's the best. Challenge your beliefs rather than uh, simply find data that support them. This is a really important way in controlling our biases and cognitive errors that lead us to better answers faster. This is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra